intrigued, aren't you? We've had uh, a fabulous couple of days with the New Ground uh, leadership teams um, up in, uh, in Sikup uh, this week. Lots of very encouraging, uh, prophetic uh, shaping and direction for us in Crawley particularly, some things that were shared um, with us. Um, I, probably next Sunday evening when we've got our next prayer meeting, I might share some of those uh, things that were brought this week that are particularly stirring us and encouraging us um, next Sunday evening after Adrian in the morning. I get the privilege of, um, of completing our Reformation Sunday series this morning. Um, we've been looking through this month at the story of the Reformation in the life of Martin Luther, the German monk 500 years ago last Tuesday, uh, who nailed his criticisms, his protests against the established church of his day to the castle church door at Wittenberg. And uh, it was very much the story about, the, uh, about his own heart being born again uh, through a revelation of the scriptures. But because of the power of social media of his day, uh, his protest went viral. And so Martin Luther's personal story, remarkably, I think by the grace of God, became uh, the story of an emergent church um, a church awakened again to her purpose, her gospel, her, her mission. And we've been looking, as many churches have through this month, uh, celebrating 500 years of the Reformation, of the, the five kind of foundation stones, the five onlys of the doctrines that Luther uh, began to teach. Only scripture, only faith, only grace, only Christ, and only the glory of God. And that's my subject for this morning. We're praying that these scriptures and these ideas that so awoke Luther's heart uh, stir our hearts and awaken something in us and in our mission as well. Let me hear an amen. amen. There we are. Well done. You are still with me as the warm sunshine streams in. And you just, oh, I've been stood up for 40 minutes and now I get to sit down. And uh, it's, uh, so I'll see if I can keep you on your toes this morning, as it were. Um, the Reformation pushed away any idea that we, as we've been seeing over the last few Sundays, that we get right with God that we find our way to salvation through my own effort, my own works. Um, we've been learning scripture is the way that God speaks to us. He alerts us to his purposes in Jesus Christ. Faith is a gift that he gives to us, the gift of saving faith and then ongoing faith. We are saved uh, through faith by grace alone, grace as a gift from God. It's all through the work of Jesus Christ alone, as Ken so helpfully reminded us last week, his finished work on the cross, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And all of this is to the glory of God alone. None of the glory goes to us at all. Every ounce of glory goes to him. That could be a good summary of what it means for the glory of God alone. But I think, and I, my understanding is that, that Luther and his emerging church meant more than just this. This idea of the glory of God alone became um, like a summary for everyday life, um, normal life, um, family, friendships, work, um, all beginning to find new meaning. If the gospel's changing me from the inside out, then all these other realms and areas or stations of my life, as Luther would call them, begin to, find, begin to become a context in which the glory of God can be seen and demonstrated. I think the Reformation stories and ideas help us ask the question, answer the question, that so many of us are still asking today. How can I live for God and serve him with my life? Anyone asking that question? How can I come out of the prison bars and walk in this freedom? How can I, how can I you know me, how can I begin to live for God and serve God and glorify him? Let's look at some scriptures 
together, shall we? Um, I'm just going to uh, read some very quickly that we will come back to. I'm going to shamelessly take them out of their context. Um, 2 Corinthians 3, um, and uh, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth about the old glory of Moses under the old covenant. Uh, He says, it's not like that for us. We've come into something greater. Um, Even to this day, when Moses, the books of the law are read, a veil covers the hearts of God's people. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, I'm in verse 16 of chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. Sorry, I didn't even tell you the passage. I'm just reading. I'm so excited about this stuff this morning. 2 Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 16. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is... Okay, well done. And that was not quite brave heart, but it was pretty good. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Um, You can keep your finger there. We'll come back to that. Turn over to 1 Peter. These little letters just before we get to Revelation that Dan read from a few moments ago. Again, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter speaking of us. Uh, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Um, I think just, uh, let's just have a quick look in Colossians 3 uh, as well. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Paul's letters after 1 and 2 Corinthians. I'll just pull a few verses out. There's so much of value here. Colossians 3, 17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. A little further on, after some specific instructions for husbands, wives, children, fathers, uh, workers. Verse 23, Paul says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Wow. And then just one more. Shall we go to 1 Corinthians Uh, Chapter 10. Again, I'm just pulling verses out here, but they'll find their context through the morning. Uh, Paul's actually writing to the church in Corinth about the freedom we have now as those who are full of the Holy Spirit, uh, free even to mix with people who are still in pagan backgrounds, to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, these kinds of things. Uh, But his summary, which is helpful for us this morning, even if you think you're not in that particular kind of cultural background, uh, verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 10. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Lord Jesus Christ, we love to glorify you in our songs and our worship, but we long to glorify you with our lives as well. Would you come and help us and equip us this morning as we open these scriptures together? Amen. We uh, resist completely the idea uh, that was around in Luther's day and is still around today that, that to serve God, you need to be able to take part in special religious ceremonies or need to be a special kind of qualified person. That uh, first uh, passage we read, 2 Corinthians 3, 15 to 18, about the ever-increasing glory, I think helps us to break this sacred, secular idea that we so often live with. 
Um, he was talking, uh, in, Paul, in that passage about Moses who had come down from the mountain where he met God at the top of the mountain. The rest of the people weren't allowed near God. They couldn't even touch the mountain. Moses had gone up the mountain. As he came down, he, he was glowing, literally glowing with glory. But over time and distance from the mountain, the glory began to fade. Uh, that's the picture that we get from what we call the Old Covenant before uh, the, the work of Jesus Christ. It's, it's temple ideas, ideas of temple theology. The mountain was the place where the Lord came down to meet with his people, the place where God dwells. Later on with Moses, uh, by God's instructions, he, never mind the mountain, God wants to come closer. He makes a tabernacle, a tent. Uh, there's an ark of covenant. It's a place of meeting where God comes again to meet with the priests. Later on, they build a physical temple, two temples actually. Um, you would go to a physical place, um, but only special people with the right kind of qualifications would be allowed to go into the place where God is to get near the glory. The new covenant ideas, of course, many of you will know these, perhaps for some, they're new ideas this morning. Uh, the new covenant idea is that after Jesus Christ, we are the temple. That's good news. We get to be the priests. The glories come to us. First of all, in Jesus Christ, we're moving now towards the time where we're beginning to think, dare I say it, about Christmas, um, the incarnation of Christ, God himself coming to earth, taking on flesh, coming in our likeness. The glories come to us. And so in John chapter 1, John, the disciple, can say of Jesus, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. Well, John wasn't up a mountain. Actually, he did go up a mountain with Jesus at one point and see Jesus glorified. That's another part of the story. John wasn't in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple. I don't think John was qualified to go in there as a priest, but he could say, we've seen the glory of the one and only in Jesus Christ. And Acts 2, of course, as charismatic believers, we often uh, find ourselves in this passage at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the emerging church. It was a, another temple moment in history, that which used to happen only in the temple, only for special people. The glory now comes as a promise for all who are in Jesus Christ. Um, his glory comes upon all the believers on that day. And the promise, Peter declares, is for, for you and for all whom the Lord our God will call. So we now get called in New Covenant theology, we get called temples of the Holy Spirit. Our lives, our hearts become God's home. Uh, the glory now comes to us, not just when we gather in church. Although I do believe Dave's encouraged us to continue meeting in the way that we do. That's a scriptural encouragement. I believe there's a special dynamic of the presence of God when we come together. Ephesians 2 talks something uh, about that, I think. But there is ever-increasing glory wherever we obediently go, uh, wherever we live as carriers of his presence. The glory doesn't decrease the further away we go from what we perceive to be the presence of God in church. The Bible idea, as we follow the story through from, from mountains and tabernacles and temples through to the, minute, the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Bible idea is that you and I have become the holy place. Remarkably, I know, I know my life, I know my heart, but remarkably, the Bible says I'm now a holy place. The glory has come to us and therefore, all of life, even the ordinary parts, can be graced with the glory and the purpose of God. Work, home, family, routine. God's with me. He's working out his purposes for his glory. He's receiving worship from us as we serve him in every moment in the ordinary stuff. 
Oh, it's good stuff, isn't it? New Covenant theology. 1 Peter 2, that passage we read, is not only saying there are, not only are there no special places, we are the special places, but also there are no special people. Let me spoil the plot. We are the special people. I think you're getting the message already. We've been made special. So that passage we read says we are now a holy people. We're a royal priesthood. We're chosen. Um, as you read through the verses, you can think for a while that, that perhaps we're supposed to remain separate. Yeah, we get that God's made us special. But doesn't he say we're supposed to live as aliens and strangers here? It's unusual language, isn't it, uh, in the world? It sounds like Peter could be making an argument for us remaining separate from the world and from the ordinariness of life. It sounds like we're supposed to be a special holy people that are separate from the world. Maybe, maybe he is pointing towards the days of monasteries and convents. If we read on, though, the Reformation ideas break in. Verse 12 of 1 Peter 2 says we're to live good lives amongst the pagans. Can we catch that emphasis? Okay, so being separate and holy isn't speaking about me cutting myself off from the world. Um, separateness speaks about my holiness. I'm to live a very holy life. I'm to look different. I'm to be distinctive. I think the old versions of the Bible talk about us being a peculiar people. I love that one. Take a look around. There's, there's one or two I'm looking at right now that are a little bit peculiar. So that's what I, it's speaking about our holiness, our sanctification, our distinctiveness, the fact that we shine like stars in a wicked and depraved generation. But we're to do so in the world amongst the pagans, not withdrawing, but very much integrating. And with purpose, Peter goes on to say, in order that they, those that we are immersed in, may see our good deeds and glorify God. So are we catching the flow here? Our lives are lived in the world as holy people, peculiar, a bit strange, amongst the brokenness, amongst the sin, amongst the decay, looking and sounding actually just like Jesus who came in amongst us in that way. Um, that, that people may observe um, how we live. Isn't that extraordinary? There's a purpose here. God's glory is flowing out. The word uh, that Peter uses, that they may see our good deeds, the, the root of that Greek word means that, that they would observe over a period, over a sustained period of time, a prolonged period of time. The idea is that the ordinary believers like you or me, full of the Holy Spirit, get immersed in a decaying world so that over time, your unsaved husband or wife, your kids, your parents, your work colleagues, your neighbours, the people you play football with or do park run with on a Saturday morning, over a prolonged period of exposure to your peculiarity, they may begin to see something of the glory of Jesus Christ. God gets the glory. What kind of glory are we talking about? Just that they say there's something a bit different about you? No, no, no. We, we see something of this in the Acts church. Passage after passage tells us when the people saw their lives, their love for one another, their good deeds, their miracles, their witness to Jesus over time, faithfully through trouble and hardship and even persecution. It says people were afraid to join them, but they joined them in great numbers. The glory that Jesus gets is many more sons and daughters added into his family through people like you and me living as strangers and aliens in the world. Wow. So these passages, the ideas they contain begin to change everything. We've just had a quick-fire round of New Covenant theology for priests and temples, but I think you're beginning to see with me that if we begin to even just to understand this a little bit, it must push the new kinds of churches out into the world to carry and display God's glory. Can I hear an amen, please? Here's where the problem comes in. We create these uh, still... In our day, these sacred, secular divides, we create a problem 
for ourselves. That means that although we kind of believe this stuff from the Bible, the reality in our lives is that we've not really understood the direction of the Scriptures towards the New Covenant. So we've ended up where we've got a tradition where the, the stuff we do in church, the ceremonies we go through, the religious performance that we have are the things that really matter. For Luther's day with the Mass in the Catholic Church, it would still be true today in Catholic Church, High Anglican churches, um, or Orthodox churches. We work a lot into Romania amongst the Orthodox. It would still be true today um, that the Mass, the, the ceremony, the magic uh, around the bread and the wine is, is where it all happens. The rest doesn't really matter too much, honestly. In fact, it doesn't even matter still today if, if the people are not there to see or to participate in what's going on. It all goes along behind a big screen anyway. Not the kind of big screen you can see above me there, but the kind of altar screen that I'm sitting behind now. What matters is that the ceremonies get performed, not that you or I get to participate them in, in them in any way. It's actually very Old Covenant, Old Testament theology. And it all reinforces the idea that true holiness takes place away from everyday life. Jude said to me this morning, Dad, if you uh, preach from behind the screen, you may come out and find everyone's gone for tea and coffee. Um, so I, I'm just going to throw in the odd joke here and there, um, just so I know you're there. And if you're, if you're listening on the internet later this week, this is a very much visual uh, illustration. Uh, I am sitting behind a screen. I uh, hope that works for you at home uh, in your headphones. Um, so these, it reinforces the idea that, that true uh, glory, true holiness takes place far away from everyday life. It's where our ideas of sacred secular derive from, but they're still true today. I had the privilege of being up at Westminster Abbey for some Reformation stuff this Tuesday on the 500th celebration day. And when you go in those magnificent buildings, they are magnificent. I love to worship there. But you, you kind of come under their spell a little, don't you? You think, yes, yeah, surely this is where the glory happens. The idea is that, that the stuff that really matters to God must take place near to God. So it's got to be in the church. It must be in her ceremonies. Um, and so our attitudes get locked in this kind of sacred secular, at the front, in this certain place, on a certain day, on a Sunday. That's where God really works. And it, it affects our thinking about what we do as well, um, our activities that really matter. If, if you're going to do stuff that really matters, well, that's the stuff the priest does in church. Um, you think about the way that, that uh, the great heroes of the faith matter to God. They've studied and prayed and given themselves to contemplation and worship. Therefore, that surely the activities that matter to God take place away from the world, cut off from the busyness of, and the noise of life in a, in a monastery or a, or a convent or in the study at the university. And surely the idea that the work that matters is God's work. And so if you really want to serve God with your life and answer that question we asked a few minutes ago, how do I serve God and live for his glory? Then surely you become a priest or a monk or a nun or in today's language, some kind of Christian professional. For your, if your work is going to have value, that's what you have to do. And we think this is out of date thinking, but it's true even in our kinds of churches as I sit behind a screen here this morning. We can still feel a little bit more value in what we do the more church meetings we have. We can, we can still project this idea that there's greater value on the jobs of those who are in full-time Christianity. We've got a wonderful team of six elders, of which one and a half of us are on the staff team, uh, and the other f uh, five and a half, <laughs> Joe's a half in this function, uh, are actually working in normal, everyday jobs. I think that's really, really good. 
because it's breaking this idea that to be in full-time Christianity as a full-time elder or pastor is in some way more valuable than other kinds of employment. We still have this idea that there is greater worth and heroism in those who become real full-time missionaries rather than those that live and serve Christ wherever he's placed them in the world. I think some of our Love Crawley thinking this summer as we went out over that big weekend and built up towards it was deliberately trying to break down the sacred, secular ideas that, you, um, that we have. That I, if, if my friends are going to get near the glory of God, then I need to invite them to come to a special building to hear a special sermon from a special professional. I think the fact that well over a hundred of us over the Friday and Saturday, went out into the streets to talk and pray with people and hundreds more on the Sunday to worship God and give testimonies and preach the gospel. I think that tells us we're starting to understand about something about the glory of God in all of life. That starting to understand that, that when we get this theology right, the church is supposed to leave, leave the building. So our mission to love God, to love one another, to love Crawley, I think is a reformation mission statement. You still with me behind the screen here? It's good here, isn't it? Um, do you know the, the, the hocus-pocus stuff that, 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 that yeah, magicians say uh, came from this kind of uh, theology back in the old days, before the Reformation, where the priest would do his magic behind the screen and turn the actual bread into the actual body of Jesus and turn the wine into the actual blood of Jesus, this magic trick Sunday after Sunday in the, in the Mass. And he would say in the Latin, hoc est corpus diem. And the, the ignorant uh, English people who didn't understand the Latin rites and services and they were muttered so far away at the altar of the church behind a screen, even if you understood, you couldn't hear it properly. They heard hoc est corpus diem and they heard hocus pocus and saw a priest doing magic with the blood and the, and the, and the bread. Uh, and, and so the, uh, the abracadabra moment comes uh, in our language today. There's a little... Fun fact for you from behind the screen. <laughs> Luther understood if we're going to be freed from the need for good works for our own salvation, if the gospel is going to free us, it will free us to live for others out of our love for Christ. We don't have to do good for God anymore. We've received good from God. But this good from God is meant to flow out to others. Uh, Luther loved to talk about Adam and Eve. Uh, think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the first couple, before they even sinned. They worked in the garden. God had told them to work and they worked. But, so we must assume before they sinned, they worked freely to please God. They weren't trying to work for God in order to please him, in order to gain some kind of righteousness of their own. They already had a full measure of rightness with God. Our works don't make us good. We've been made good by the grace of God. Then we gladly and naturally produce good works in and through our lives. The gospel drives us out into the world to serve others in love as those who are so dearly loved. At that point, I'm going to come out from behind the screen. Hey. I think at the risk of confusing you even more, I'm just going to walk down here, because I want to ask the question, where is the best place for us to serve God and for us to do his work? If we recognise that the best place for us to serve God and live for his glory isn't behind the screen at the altar, and it isn't in the monastery, but it's out in the world, serving the world, out here. It's not doing works to please God, but living to serve him through a simple life of faith. Okay, now I've made you nervous because the ones that are at the back are now at the front, which is a bit scary. I'm going to be here for a few, few more minutes. You can keep facing the front. I won't be offended. But if you can shuffle around, you're welcome to. We, we know from the scriptures that without faith, it's impossible to please God. With faith, therefore, we can live for him. 
It's great for me to preach here and hear my voice echoing down the corridor because this stuff is supposed to take us outwards and that's good news. With faith we can serve his kingdom purposes in any part, part of our lives. If we've sung it this morning, if our lives themselves, Romans 12.1, are spiritual acts of worship, if we are truly a living sacrifice, then Luther's Reformation ideas show us that this sacrifice no longer happens at the altar, at the front, hidden away but it, it happens out there in the world. I love, uh, I think it's Exodus 3, Moses at the burning bush. It's another temple moment. It's supposed to alert us to what's coming later with Jesus Christ. Moses goes to a bush that's on fire. He doesn't notice, he's intrigued. That's the whole point. And uh, God speaks from the burning bush. and says, Moses, take off your shoes. Don't come any closer. You're on holy ground. Now, the reality is, if you read around the passage, Moses wasn't on holy ground. He was looking after his father-in-law's sheep in the desert. It was just a bush in the wilderness, but God was present at the bush. And therefore, this is holy ground. That's the whole point of these Old Testament ideas. They point us how we read the Old Testament. They point us to a greater reality in the finished work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. What makes the ground holy in Exodus 3 with Moses is that God himself is present there. Do you see the parallel for us as disciples of Jesus now uh, in this era? Um, awakened by grace, full of the Holy Spirit, offering our lives to God in every context, every moment that he has placed us in. And so everywhere we walk becomes holy ground. Everyday life becomes the sacred place where we offer sacrifices of thanksgiving to God. How do I serve God with my life? That's the question we're asking this morning. David, I feel like I should ask you some questions, but you're very welcome standing here. Uh, it's nice, nice to have you with me. Please um, don't. What, what do you do for a living? Um, I, I stand up as a computer programmer. And w with which company? Talus. So you're a computer programmer at Talus, and there's obviously things you can't tell us about what you do which are going to go on the internet, otherwise um, you'd have to shoot me. I would have to shoot you. you okay, that's good news. So let's, even for the glory of God, uh, that's probably not where we want to go this morning. <laughs> so David, like me, has become a priest. He serves God in his work. Um, he, he lives his life in the world to be observed, 1 Peter 2, an ordinary life of faith, his everyday walk to work as he stands at his desk, as he, as he programs computers in all kinds of technical ways, I don't understand. Apparently God says that that's a simple sacrifice to the Lord which is for his glory. David and you and me have become glory carriers. We're away from the temple. We're amongst the people. We're in the offices and the cafes and the car parks of Talis. We're mixed up and immersed in the mess of life. Church, that's who we are. That's how we begin to live and serve the kingdom of God. So just quickly, before we break bread together, I want to give you a few areas of application. Uh, and I think we've probably launched on, landed on some already. The first is that we are totally redefining what we may have thought of by priesthood and the ideas of priesthood. We've been saying and we understand, don't we, that the established church would categorize into two groups, clergy, guys like me, professional pastors, and the laity, that's the rest of you, the great unwashed. Um, so uh, God bless you. Um, but you know, of course, New Covenant theology says you have been washed. So that's good news, isn't it? Um, so that divide, Luther taught us, and we recognize it from the scriptures, it's just not there anymore. Luther taught that from, from a child's baptism, you've become a priest. You, if you've got born again, you've become a priest. Luther saw rightly 
Um, I would differ with him on infant baptism, but rightly saw that there was nothing that priests and professionals can't do that can't be done by every ordinary believer that's full of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. We can all open the Bible and teach something. We can all proclaim the Word of God. We can all baptize our friends. We can all share communion. We can all forgive one another's sins. We can all pray for one another. These are all duties that are common to any disciple of Jesus Christ and are not unique just to paid professional pastors. Luther wasn't against leadership. Um, We know the New Testament shows a community of saints where some are set apart rightly to lead. But he was clear uh, that where the Catholic Church of his day would talk about taking holy orders, Luther would argue this way, fathers, mothers, children, servants, princes, judges, officials, clerks are doing holy work and are members of a holy order. Did you know when he wandered into this building at 10 o'clock this morning, five past 10, some of you, that you will be joining a holy order this morning? Sounds a bit mystical, doesn't it? You can take your monk's road on the, on the way out to tea and coffee. Um, you've joined a holy order. So I wonder, let me ask you, how, how is this affecting your view of being a priest? Have you got it yet? Um, if we don't get it, we just perpetuate this idea of coming to church, of, 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 of watching a service that is performed for us. And God has a plan to work with you and I to display his glory in the world. We miss a huge part of our purpose and our calling and the story we've been written in as believers if we miss what it truly means to be called priests before God. Let me hear an amen, please. Secondly, and briefly, um, and we could do a whole series on this, it, this, the application is for our vocation, our calling, our, our work. What about our calling? How do I serve God? You can come in if you want, Ian. You have to sit there. What do you do for a living? Project, project manager. Pro, pro, we've got a project manager in the corridor, ladies and gents. He's, he's so pumped up with this theology, he's ready to go back to work already. Um, he's not sitting on the naughty step. If you had that idea, that's totally wrong. Uh, we have no naughty step here. Jesus has dealt with all our naughtiness. Praise God. Thank you. So uh, our generation is fixed on this idea about, you know, what is my calling? How do I work it out? On Tuesday, I've got a day teaching our new ground impact uh, gap year students, um, reformation and, and revival. Every time when I teach that class, I, I get these hungry young 18 to 20-somethings asking me, how do you work out your calling in life? It's a really good question to ask, but actually it's very simple. We don't need to get too hung up about it. Luther was clear. He used to speak all the time from 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 20. It's actually about uh, unbelieving husbands or wives. When one of you gets born again, you should stay with them and, and trust that God will work out his purposes. But he uses it in this context. It's great when other pastors take verses out of context and you're allowed to copy them. Um, 1 Corinthians 7.20, with regard to calling, Luther would teach, each one of you should remain in the condition in which he was called. That's good news, isn't it? So if if you're waiting for some greater call, some full-time call, to be a, a missionary or a pastor, it may even prevent you from walking right now in your true call from God to serve his kingdom purposes in the life and the stage and the season he's placed you in right now as a project manager or a computer programmer. Luther would say, how is it possible you are not called? You've always been in some station in your life. A husband, a wife, a boy, a girl, a worker. So in Luther's language, your calling isn't difficult to discern. Um, It's just a look at your life. It's your current circumstances. Um, You get born again, and you're a computer programmer at Talis. Brilliant. You serve God's kingdom as a computer programmer at Talis. You do it with joy, and you do it with a sense of purpose, unless or until he calls you differently. Simples, as the meerkats 
would say. That's it. You work as though you're working for the Lord. You don't try hard to be spiritual. Ian, the project manager, isn't being exhorted to jump on his desk and preach the gospel tomorrow. He needs to be very clear that the Lord was saying that to him, but he does work for the Lord and for his glory and work hard and do, do, do the most excellent job he can. Luther would say, a Christian cobbler does well not by putting crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes. God's interested in good craftsmanship. Okay, we don't, perhaps most of us don't do craftsmanship these days, but you can, you can uh, program software in a craftsmanship attitude. God has saved you. God has called you. We love him. We get to love and serve our neighbour in our current context. Have you got that? I think this is really important theology for us to understand today. Remember in Luther's time, people probably, would, most of them were doing the same job for life. In fact, they had no real choice. Um, I mentioned Luther talking about a, a cobbler, a shoemaker. Come in as well, Darren, you're really welcome. Um, here's another priest coming in the door right now. Um, so if you were a cobbler um, in Luther's day, you were a cobbler because your dad was a cobbler and your granddad was a cobbler. Uh, and so you didn't go to the careers fair at school and say, do you know what, I'm tired of the, the dusty old leather soles. I want my soul to come alive. You see what I've done there? Um, Still awake. I, I yearn to write poetry and sing songs and, and, and travel with my minstrels and, and, and glorify God. You, you don't have that opportunity. If your father makes shoes, that's what you're going to do. The idea that, that I'm somehow looking for satisfaction and worth in my work, of course they would have found that in their work. But this, this modern idea that we have now, I think, endangers us in terms of making work an idol for us. Today, for most of us, we change our work, even our career, a number of times. Therefore, it's even more important we get hold of these biblical ideas. If we've got a culture where um, our roles change so quickly, we need to recognise my identity, my value, is not found ultimately in my position at work, in how much I get paid, in what level of satisfaction I may have in my work. My true identity is found in the grace of God as his beloved child. The danger is that work becomes an idol, as I've said. Um, so I'm looking all the time. My work must satisfy. It must bring me meaning. And so I feed that beast. I feed it with overwork. And I, I'm looking for all my status and satisfaction there. The, the idea of value and purpose in our work, I think, was rediscovered in Luther's day in a really helpful way. But it was never the ultimate. Jesus Christ uh, and his kingdom is what matters most. So we are released to live for God and to work Rest and play for his glory. Amen. Let me just talk about rest quickly before we move to a conclusion. I'm taking too long, but I'm quite excited by this stuff. Rest is important. We can't speak about a theology on work and not speak about a theology on rest. Friends, if we're really being released from a culture of busyness, if we really are being set free from the slavery, the idolatry of work, of needing to work harder and longer, of needing to be seen to be working harder and longer, of feeling indispensable. I can't even walk away from work because I'm so important, the whole thing will fall apart. If you're one of those that struggles to switch off, then we need to catch this today. Work has value. What you do is so valuable to God, it's so important, but it is not your idol or your security. Therefore, you and I can be obedient to God's command and take at least one day of rest where we can enjoy rest and enjoy God and enjoy his glory. So as Paul said, we read it earlier, whatever I do, whatever I eat or drink, the people I spend my time with, the leisure pursuits that recharge me, the hospitality that takes place around my table, I'm going to rest for God's glory. Um, I wonder if there's application here for anyone today in those areas. I'm just running to the front now to respond to that one. Um, finally, co-workers with God. The idea that we get to 
glorify God in every act of life, I think is quite breathtaking and, and beautifully simple. Um, think about even the Lord's Prayer. Luther instructed his disciples and, and uh, the new churches to pray the Lord's Prayer every day as a part of his shorter catechism. Uh, the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread. Um, thinking about the, the normal way that God provides bread for us. It's not through the supernatural like it was in the wilderness with, with the people of Israel. Um, I don't know about you, maybe it is for you. Maybe you come down for breakfast in the morning and bread has appeared on your table. For me, I go to Aldi for my bread. Um, does, does that mean God hasn't provided my bread? Does that mean that God shouldn't be thanked and worshipped for his provision? Of, of course he should be. Luther's answer was that God provides through the farmer, the miller, the baker, the bread seller, in our era, the supermarket owner. It's really simple biblical logic. Um, God has called us to work with him in order to, to open up blessing and provision in our lives. He works through the actions of ordinary human beings like you and I. Yeah, God sustains the universe through the power of his mighty hand, but he calls us to steward with him and partner with him in obedience. I think that gives real significance to our work. Even to some that say, I just do an ordinary job, it has real significance and value before God. It's about more than how we earn our living as well. I think in all of our roles and stations of life, God wants us to work with him. He wants to work with us. We think about how, um, how, how children are made and raised. God could have produced people out of the dust like he did with Adam in the first place. But he chooses to create human life through the loving, lifelong relationship between a man and a woman. He chooses to nurture and raise children within the context of a, of a family. He chooses that the elderly are cared for, the weak are looked after, the sick are healed, the disabled are cherished in family life and in community life. God wants to work with us and minister through us. And so our calling and living a life where we know our calling is about more than just what job we do and how I earn enough living to pay my uh, bills. But, but it, it, it means that real value, real kingdom value comes to my role as a husband or you as a wife, or as a parent, or a carer, or a single, or someone who's retired. It means those of you that are struggling to stay awake this morning because you're, you're having disturbed nights with young children. Wow, um, that's so fruitful and valuable in the plan of God. Those who are faithfully caring for an older parent. Those who are looking after disabled children or adults. This is ministry that God has built value and joy into, even in the mundane parts of life, because they display his glory. Everyday thanksgiving, let me just rattle through these last two. These simple ideas from the scriptures release me to live with thankfulness to God. Do you want to be more thankful? We, we live in an age of dissatisfaction. We should be generating an age of satisfaction and contentment in God, which alerts the watching world around me to the sufficiency of the gospel. I will read a quote before we break bread. All of life, this is Jean Edward Veith. All of life, even the most mundane facets of our existence, become occasions to glorify God. Whenever someone does something for you, brings a meal at a restaurant, cleans up after you, builds your house, preaches a sermon, be grateful for the human beings whom God is using to bless you and praise him for his unmerited gifts. Do you savour your food? Glorify God for the hands that prepared it. Are you moved by a work of art, a piece of music, a novel, a movie? Glorify God who has given such artistic gifts to human beings. Wow! Church, if we get this, this simple Reformation view, I think we'll be happy, contented worshippers of Jesus Christ. And I think the world around us may be quite attracted to those kinds of people, this attitude of gratitude. I think it's one of the ways we will not only love and serve one another, but love and serve and bless cruelly. 
And finally, our application is that we, if we've rightly caught these ideas from the scriptures and from the Reformation, we should get to share the gospel a little bit more openly. Remember, the whole point of these new covenant kinds of priests is that God's glory gets to be lived out and seen and observed over time. Not just observed, if you read on to 1 Peter 3, the chapter on from where we read earlier, well, we need to be ready to give an answer for the way we live with such hope. So we're eager to do good in every situation. We're living for his glory. There will be regular opportunities to share a reason for why you and I are happy and content in our work, in our lives, in the mundane parts of life. Let me finish with a quote from Michael Reeves and then we're going to stand and pray. Thank you for being patient as I've jumped around behind screens and run to the back of the building and given you a crick in your neck. We'll pray for bad necks in a moment. Michael Reeves says, Still today we tend to look for religion in the extraordinary. We expect to encounter God in the special meetings, in special locations, whether that's the grandeur of a cathedral with its elaborate liturgy or the buzz of a high-octane worship service. Luther's doctrine of vocation place the work of God firmly in the ordinary. Through our vocation, God is revealed even in mundane activities. God is the God of all creation. He's the God of Monday mornings as well as Sunday mornings. Humanity was made in the image of God to reflect his glory in the world. In the gospel, we're restored to our true humanity. We're renewed so we can again reflect God's glory in the world. The Reformation affirmation of everyday life is an invitation to see the whole earth as the theatre of God's glory and to see our whole lives as opportunities to reflect that glory. If you're in agreement with me this morning, why don't you stand and we'll pray together. Lord Jesus, we offer you our lives. We offer you Monday mornings as well as our Sunday mornings. We, we commit again our daily purposes to you. Lord, forgive us where we've complained about the state we find ourselves in. Forgive us where we find ourselves daydreaming about a better life that's just around the corner. Lord, would you help us to begin to thank you for where we find ourselves right now. Would you open our eyes to find opportunities to shine and serve and glorify you. Lord, we pray now as we break bread and finish for all those who are uh, in work, uh, going into work tomorrow, indeed some today um, with shift work. We bless them, Lord, in their, in their work. We pray for many opportunities to serve you and glorify you. We pray for those that are in manual jobs as well as the professional. Lord, you, you love those and value those that are earning minimum wage as well as those that are earning huge wages. It's all for your purpose. We pray for the unemployed, Lord, your promise to support and care and provide. Lord, again, would you remind them their identity is not in their lack of work any more than it is in the work that we have. We pray they know their purpose in you. Lord, we pray as we break bread for those who are caring for children and sick and elderly relatives. Lord, we pray for those who are retired. Lord, those who feel they may now have no real purpose in life because they're outside of paid work. Lord, may our older people shine with kingdom purpose and joy and happy thankfulness for your glory. Lord, we pray for relationships between husbands and wives, parents and children. We pray for our singles to live with glory and purpose. Oh, thank you, Lord. They are complete in Christ. They're not lacking because they're not married. They're not life on hold waiting to be married. Lord, you love them and they're complete and they're able to serve your purposes right now at this stage of life. Lord, we pray for our rest and our places of leisure. We pray for your presence in our hospitality. We pray for those who are creatives and writers and thinkers and dancers. May it all be for a display of your glory, we pray. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Lord, we, we lift up to you the realms in which we serve you. Let the ordinary parts of our life resound with your glory. 
And Lord, we know that as we do so, you will draw men and women to yourself. And so we ask you not only to release your glory in our lives, but to equip us, please, to be ready to give an answer for the hope we have in you, Jesus. Lord Jesus, may we live for your glory. Amen. 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 Just want to thank you for your patience this morning. We've gone a little bit over time.